Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, May 7th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. A senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Okay, politically interesting uh, macroeconomic news uh, with many ramifications. Uh, the jobs report for April is out, and it's terrible. Uh, though nominally, it's not so terrible. It's I think two hundred uh, up two hundred and sixty six thousand jobs, which sounds good. However. People were expecting as many as a million new jobs, and it's not just that that is problematic, but also uh, that the March numbers uh, were revised downward a couple hundred thousand jobs, meaning that the jobs recovery, uh, along with the economic recovery, does not seem to be happening. Uh, And I think there are two questions that we need to address. One is... Uh, ordinarily a white house wants to trumpet news that its behavior is having positive economic ramifications in terms of a jobs report. Right. Uh, and would basically not be happy with the news that the jobs numbers are going down. However, however, uh, the Biden administration is attempting to get this $4 trillion you know, spending behemoth, pat, you know, through or like to get the advantage or sort of momentum or however it is. It's not even like really a proposal yet, a full legislative proposal. Uh, and it may actually want bad economic news because then it can claim that we're still in a crisis and that we need all of this extra spending. So that's question one. Is this something that perversely might be something that the Biden administration would welcome, unlike every other administration that has ever uh, preceded it. That's number one. And then number two, what if the reason that the jobs report uh, for uh, April and then the uh, jobs report in March, um, which uh, March was the month in which the CARES Act was passed, what if what we are seeing are the consequences of the extension of federal unemployment benefits over and above state unemployment benefits through September of $300 per week, or in grand total, if you remain unemployed from March till September, $7,500 right into your pocket from the federal government, along with whatever you might get from the state, plus a $10,200 tax exemption if you are unemployed this year. And so what are the, are we seeing a incredible slowdown in jobs, cre- in jobs creation because nobody is filling jobs because the, as we have warned and that we've been worried about, federal government largesse is actually paying, is actually giving people an incentive not to go back to work. So uh, these are sort of connected, but anyway, um, that's, that's so- that, yeah. I think um, the message, we need more extravagant spending because our extravagant spending has created a crisis, is a terrible message. And I also think the administration will use it. Okay. Why is it a terrible message? Because it's saying it's saying that the, the, the problem is in, inherently um, one of policy here, our policy. We, we are, our spending is a hindrance. To, to getting things up and running again. 
Well, and they, the infrastructure bill in particular has, they've been promoting it, you know, in recent weeks. And uh, it's always about jobs, often union jobs. It's these are good union jobs, people doing clean energy, all the healthcare, you know, care workers, teachers. The, the reason that they're making everything infrastructure is that then they can promote this idea that they're going to create all these new jobs. Um, some of those jobs are there and ready to be filled now. It's not, I mean, so, so some of the money that they're throwing at them is actually throwing at jobs that are already in existence. I'm not sure how they're creating new ones here, but I, I agree with Abe. I mean, it's not the fact that the government payments might be suppressing people's willingness to go back to work. Um, they're, they're not just going to pretend there's not a contradiction with that uh, and, and their continued spending. They don't see a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah. I just, <laughs> it's, it, it it kind of defies belief to think that you know the laws of political gravity have been repealed. I mean, the Biden administration and the president have been touting themselves how many jobs they've created in the first hundred days, like millions of jobs, more than any other administration in history has created these jobs. Somehow they created these jobs. Now they don't get that talking point. And clearly it was one they were invested in before. Presumably they, they found some political benefit in it, which makes a lot of sense and pivoting merely to, well, you know, all the jobs, we can't create all these jobs, I guess. The jobs are slowing down, so we're going to have to throw more money at the economy. It's kind of a 180. Okay, but so here, so the story, I think we need to, like, get to this correlation question. So the job increase for March, which was projected in the first week of April at 770,000, uh, at 916,000, was revised downward to 770,000. So that's 140. 6,000 jobs off the number. And then we have uh, 266,000 as opposed to a million. And we do have the fact that this bill was passed as a relief package. And the question that the mainstream media are not going to ask, but that is the obvious question is, was there a terrible unintended consequence? Not unintended because, of course, of course, they want a million jobs created while this is all going on. And not that it was unanticipated because we, among many other people, anticipated it and said it is a bad idea to pay people to remain on, you know, to, to, to give people extra unemployment benefits when the job, when job creation is sizzling for obvious reasons, which is that, A, there are jobs that they can get, and you don't want to put them in the position of saying, I'll just wait and see if I can get a better one later. You want people in there because their being in the workplace itself creates more economic activity that helps the economy grow more, right? It's that's not just, just I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a striking consensus this morning that the conservative critique was right. Where where is because, this consensus? No, I, I don't disagree on political it. Twitter, basically. Oh, okay. Um, insofar as you can measure such a thing, minutes after this event has happened, it's there in the in the ether, and in part because you can't hide the fact that hiring is exploding. It's it's hard to walk out the door without being accosted by somebody who's saying, "We're hiring. We have a job. We want to pay well, you to, to get an you. interview. We'll pay you." Yeah. They're offering huge bonuses to people who who to come on. I mean, these are like Rehire, right. the just, kind just of jobs that don't offer bonuses. And, and fill out an application sometimes is, is a company with financial incentives. I mean, so get, here we're, here's where jobs were gained, okay? Food services and drinking places, right? Because they're opening up again, right? Amusements, gambling, and recreation because they're opening up again, right? Accommodation, that's hotels because people can now stay in hotels again, Right. 
repair and maintenance because people if uh, because people's cars are now being more in use or whatever. Okay, now personal and laundry services uh, because maybe people need to get their clothes washed more because they're going back to work. Uh, local government education. I don't even know what category that is. Okay, <laughs> and. Uh, child care, day, child daycare services, because pe- women are going back to work and these places are opening up again. And real estate uh, rental and leasing, because, of course, there's a lot of activity in the real estate market. Now, here's where the jobs are going down. Temporary help services, business support services, couriers and messengers, uh, motor vehicles and parts, and retail trade unemployment. What is key to these jobs? They are jobs that it will largely be lower paying, right? And therefore will be in competition with that $7,500 that the federal government is offering you to sit on the sidelines and stay home along with whatever it is that your state is going to pay you, right? Or is going to, is going to, is going to subvent you. So it's not good. Like, it's not like anyone is, you know, going to enjoy, a, a wonderful, you know, leisure life with this kind of uh, state-provided money, but they could make just the same going back to work. But why should they? Why should they? We know what work is ennobling. It's better to work than to be on the dole and all of that. But not if the president of the United States is like, no, 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 don't worry. We'll take care. You know, you don't want well, to go they, back to work. There's Fine. A, there's a secondary message that this administration has also been sending in the last few months, which is it might not be safe yet, right? We're not sure we've turned the corner on this pandemic and oh, the variants. I mean, I, I do think if you have a lower paying job in a public facing pr- uh, profession at, where your risk is higher of, of uh, you know, and you haven't yet been vaccinated, or you don't want to get vaccinated, why not sit at home for the same amount of money and not have that risk as well? So that must play into some of the mindset of the people who, who don't feel a strong incentive to go back to work. The other thing we should mention, and our friend and contributor Matt Continenti has a great column about this in the Free Beacon, is the inflation is happening, people. Milton Friedman's revenge is coming. And um, CNN led with that on their news uh, stories this morning. They talked about inflation on CNN. That should concern the Biden administration. Right. Um, no, we weren't supposed to panic, remember? There's no point. There's no reason to panic. Why are you panicking? Stop panicking. But what what were what weren't we supposed to panic about? Inflation. Inflation. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh, this is your prescription. No, we're supposed, no, but we're supposed to we're supposed panic. to panic about everything, right? We're supposed to panic about Inflation. everything but things that might be politically problematic. <laughs> right. right. We're supposed to panic about you know kids not wearing masks at summer camp, but we are supposed to that we are supposed to panic about, but we're not supposed to panic about inflation. Okay, so um. So what what strikes me as interesting here is the is the long-range thinking crisis that is represented by the CARES Act and by I would say democratic and progressive economic ideas as expressed in it which is nobody says that taking a job that pays you $12 an hour is a great thing for the rest of your life. The idea is that you get a job at $12 an hour so that six months later you can get a job at $13 an hour. So that six months after that you can get a job that pays you $17 an hour. You establish a work record. You establish that you can 
go in on time, leave on time, do what is necessary. And in a growing market, in a sizzling economy, your labor will be the subject of competitive bidding that will do you good. And not only that, but of all the ancillary emotional and psychic benefits of taking care of yourself, of taking care of your family, of not sitting home and playing video games in the basement or watching Netflix or whatever it is that people do when they are not working, uh, particularly after the last year of the pandemic, right? So um, where is this thinking was totally obliterated in the CARES Act, which was basically the idea that everybody is suffering. It's like, you know, we need to make sure that we're throwing enough money at everybody so that everybody doesn't drown. And that idea was fine in June of 2020, and it was diluted in March of 2021 when we know, I believe, that the economy is, you know, I don't know where the, I can't, you know, the economy grew 5% or something like that in the first quarter. That's enormous growth. And, 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 and the federal government and that bill interfered with the natural progression of the economy. And, and the other um, depressing aspect of this is that so these people aren't taking jobs because wh- why would they when they can get um, uh, the, the paid uh, the same amount um, for doing nothing? But this also hinders those businesses that need to staff up. It hinders them from growing at a time when there could be explosive growth in these businesses. Absolutely. I mean, and so, and and in that case, that's also an inflationary spiral, by the way, because then they have to pay. And I know this is something that labor leftist labor economists don't want me to say because they, they don't believe that, that this should be a calculation, but they are going to have to pay more than they should otherwise have to pay to staff these jobs. And then how, how do they deal with that? They have to pass on the cost of increased labor to consumers, and that is called inflation. That is infl- as one of the many examples of how inflation works because, uh, you know, they, that they, will, they will have to price accordingly the goods and services that they provide based on the cost of their workforce, which is the largest single cost that most employers actually have to shoulder. But in a way, it's exactly the way inflation happens that we've been predicting, which is which is that these employees, these employers rather, have to compete with the federal with the federal government. Right, and then of course that is the key to the end. Now this is where the rubber meets the road with all the infrastructure spending that we're talking about. We have here an almost direct example, I think, of how a bad policy has immediate consequences. Right? Okay. Pretty similar to like when they, you know, when they ended uh, when they ended bail uh, in 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 New York and released you know released everybody without bail in New York City and New York State, and the crime rate went up basically three weeks later because everybody who had been arrested would have been kept on bail had to be put back on the streets, and then they continued to commit crimes. Right? That was 2019, 2020. So here we have a case. CARES Act passes job growth craters, relatively speaking. I mean, it's still growing, so I, I, just the pace of job growth has cratered. The entire structure of the infrastructure bill creates a, an economy-wide competition for resources with the federal government. 
not only in terms of lending and like, you know, how much it's going to cost to borrow money because the federal government is going to be out borrowing money like crazy, but in terms of every job that is created by the infrastructure act that will then double down on this effect of the, of the unemployment money. Uh, But actually in higher skilled jobs and higher skilled labor actually, and then You'll really see inflation because because then you're going to be talking about have really having to compete for for expensive people and passing on the cost to consumers. But this is where it's you've already gotten <clears throat> some reports that the Biden administration sort of knows that their infrastructure pitch is, is dead and they're shifting to a, a more scaled back package. As who knows what that's going to look like and the you know scale is a relative term here. It's probably going to be just as gigantic. But the politics of this are pretty interesting because. You know, everybody sort of instinctually saw this, on, uh, even among the Democrats who I follow here, and saw this and said, this is a, uh, instinctually a giant problem for Democrats. Because, you know, it doesn't, there, there, there's no more uh, pressing pocketbook issue than how much, you know, paper products cost at the store. And if they're raising, then you're disinclined to reward anybody who's in power while you're having to pay more for the goods that didn't cost as much than a week ago that they cost now. So they know that this is a problem. And the Biden administration's instinct has been to lean into whatever progressives tell them to do. And progressives and the, the economic sort of progressive has one idea, one big idea, and that's it. And it's to pay people, just give them money, give people money to do whatever it is they want to do. And that's how we're going to get to this utopia. We're seeing the effects of it now. And it's politically perilous for this administration a self-preservation instinct alone should lead them to back off a lot of this utopian progressivism they've been leaning into. Well, and this, this that's as, it's such an important point because the ideological argument that absolutely um, uh, brings a lot of enthusiasm from the political left, particularly on Twitter, and you see it, you you see these little sound bites uh, circulating, and, and actually, of course, mainstream journalists who are sympathetic to it also pick up on this has no basis in economic reality. But the one of the arguments I've seen often, and I'm seeing it a lot, even just in the last few hours, is jobs must be terrible and workers must be being treated horribly if they'll choose to just stay at home and not get one. So we really, it, this just proves all these or, jobs are awful and we should let them all die. Right. Or, exactly. Or, or wages are too low. Right. So, it, but it's a fiction. I mean, it, it, it's a fiction that suits an ideological narrative. It's a very powerful narrative for a lot of people who control elite institutions in this country. But as Noah says, if you go to the, the store to buy toilet paper and it's a dollar more than it was last week, you notice that. That's noticeable. That There's no ideological narrative that's going to square that circle. Again, I, I've said this before and I don't want to pull my, like the age card on you guys, but you guys are too young, I think, to remember the effects of hyperinflation in the 1970s. And I'm not, I was a teenager. I read, a, I read about it. I know you read it about alive, it. alive, but I read books. Yeah. Okay. But you know how, you know how it was retailed and marketed to everybody in the country that people knew aside from their own experiences at this, because Johnny Carson made jokes about it every night because sitcoms about middle-class families were loaded and awash in jokes and routines about what it was like to come in when you had bags walking through the door on one day at a time set in Indianapolis, a single divorced mother living with her two daughters in Indianapolis. And every show would sort of begin with her going, oh my God, toilet paper just cost $2 more than it did before. Look at what's happening with gas prices. You have no idea how central to the American consciousness and how ruinous 
to the American cultural spirit inflation was. I mean, we, we people have read about it about, you know, Germany in the 20s. And the whole point is it wasn't like an inflation like that where people could wallpaper, you know, could use Marx's wallpaper. It was a kind of slow degrading of the value of your money and this and this haunting effect that as week passed by week, everything was just a little more expensive and your money went a little not quite as far. Now this some of this is going to be masked by credit card, you know, by by the by the, the degree to which people use credit cards, by the degree to which people don't go to the store to shop in the same way, and therefore the bills are sort of come later. But it's not going to be masked forever. And if we follow along this path that the Democrats have cast themselves on, they are going to this is something that we are going to be experiencing for months if not years to come and it is a it is a political negative political gift that keeps on giving is the point like there's no point at which inflation just goes away it doesn't sort of magically stop it's like a boulder rolling down a hill um and it's a very very dangerous thing for a country and i, I understand that after sort of 40 years of having very little experience of it it was probably inevitable one way or another that we were going to have to go through another inflationary spiral in order to remember why it was so awful. The odd thing is that Joe Biden became a senator right smack dab in the middle. Middle class Joe became a senator in 1972 right after Richard Nixon imposed wage and price controls. And I want to talk about Nixon wage and price controls and something else the Biden administration did before I tell you you got to go to that podcast feed that you have. You got to go to Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, and subscribe to Post Corona, Dan Senor's podcast, because he has the podcast of the year so far about it's called This Is Post Corona, and it is a kind of hour long documentary about what life is like in Israel. He was in Israel, one of the few people who got into Israel. Uh, which has largely been closed down, even though they've basically hit herd immunity. He was in Israel, talked to uh, TV producers, fashion designers, restaurateurs, academics about what it's like for a country to come out of a pandemic lockdown. And um, it is a stunning piece of work, fascinating and full of these lessons and questions that it raises about what happens, what a healthy optimistic society does with the news that it can go back to normal. And in Israel, they have gone back to normal with a vengeance. They have gone back to normal like crazy. They have gone back to normal like it is party time 24-7. And the big question in the United States is, is that us or are we clinging, in particular, our American elites clinging to the idea that we should never go back to normal? We, there is no normal. Normal is bad, and uh, and and you know we need to re- retain this kind of weird neurotic safety regime for as long as we possibly can, and maybe forever. And all our behavior should change as a result of the of the pandemic because we've learned important hard lessons about how to live. And Israel, which is you know the fastest growing economy in the West, a country that went from being a poor country to a rich country in the last 15, 20 years, despite its political troubles, despite its political crises uh, that it is going through now, 
is a country with firmly with its eye set to the future and a sense of possibility. And can we be that country? Can we be like that? That is the question that is posed. That is the the key to the question in Dan Senor's podcast, Post-Corona, the whole series, and central to this thing, uh, the podcast that he has done about Israel. Go listen to it now. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever. Post-Corona, Dan Senor, the Israel podcast. And we thank him for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Wage and price controls. I was struck today by the Wall Street Journal's lead editorial, which is the second editorial I think they've done in two days on the decision. Uh, it's not the first, like the decision to uh, to uh, Biden's decision. We talked about all yesterday's podcast to um, uh, waive patent rights uh, for patent protections for uh, the coronavirus vaccines to allow them to be uh, freely somehow manufactured uh, outside the United States um, in India and Africa uh, in particular. Um, and they say flatly that this may be the single worst financial decision since the imposition of N- Nixon's imposition of wage and price controls in 1971, which not only didn't work, but actually in one of those unintended consequence thingies helped actually exacerbate and help uh, drive the inflationary spiral of the 1970s. So uh, I thought it was, it was an interesting moment to talk about this again, because we said on the podcast yesterday, how is this going to stand? Is this really going to happen? I mean, can he just wave his hand and do it? And Pfizer, the Pfizer vaccine is not owned exclusively by Pfizer. There is a German company, BioNTech, that is its partner in the manufacture and the creation and the patenting of this uh, medication, uh, this vaccine. And uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel yesterday said, we are not going to go along with this. We do not go along with this. Meanwhile, Pfizer has ramped up its production of vaccine doses from an expected 1.2 billion this year to 3 billion, meaning that it was already producing vaccine that was likely going to go abroad. Because as we know, not only don't we need that much, but also we have vaccine hesitancy rising in this country and, and there may just not be the same kind of demand for these doses that, that, that we would have and they would ship it abroad and, and they could ship it abroad with an American flag on it have it manufactured in the United States largely because we need American jobs. Remember American jobs? No, we want to send it abroad so that India and Africa can 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 steal, and China can steal mRNA technology, do a technology transfer where this incredible intellectual good that was largely produced in the United States can be seized. And India has a gigantic market in generic drugs, is a manufacturer of generic drugs. It would like nothing more than to get its hands on this in order to hasten the creation of a generic drug. They are the ones who make money off cheap drugs. So, And they'll administer it uh, more inefficiently, as we said yesterday. What, what, what drives me crazy about this is in response to the news yesterday, I, I see a lot of takes that say something along the lines of, well, surely there's some compromise here. There's some middle ground um, between the, the 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 drug companies keeping the patents and getting the 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 um, the vaccine to the countries that need it. What middle ground? They want you want. Why should there be a compromise between good policy and bad policy? That is that is preposterous. 
I mean, this makes me want to tear my hair out. There is a middle ground, right. and it exists. It pre-exists. Exactly. Moderna has already pledged to avoid enforcing its patent rights during the pandemic. Pfizer and BioNTech have partnered with overseas firms to speed the production of its vaccine manufactured abroad, and yet while still retaining its intellectual property rights and getting all the money that it deserves as a result of its innovations, its miraculous innovations. And the reason why this policy was put in place at all is because it's dem- you can demagogue it. Anybody who says we shouldn't waive these patent rights and, and these pharmaceutical producers should get what they deserve is accused of being a heartless, bloodthirsty monster who wants people to wants bodies to pile up overseas, just as we've expended extended unemployment rights and unemployment um, benefits here, only as a result of demagoguery. Because the people who said, "Well, this is going to this is going to have perverse economic effects," were shouted down and called cruel and heartless. And we're, we're living the nightmare as a result. And, and, you know, this is largely going to fail, this initiative to, to waive these patent rights. I'm pretty convinced that it's going to fail in courts. But the fact that we're even doing this now is so out counterproductive, unproductive, and predicated on this false assumption that generosity alone is good policy. It's not. Well, this the demagoguery point is important because the other thing that happened this week, and and, and, a, and a sure sign that that this is a ridiculous idea, um, is that a lot of celebrities are now jumping on the bandwagon. Right? They heard there was some concert in L.A. and these ridiculous pseudo royalty people who what's their names uh, the the Duke. Uh, Prince Harry and his wife like write this open letter about intellectual property. I'm like, you actually have to have intellect if you're going to write a letter urging you know businesses to give up their intellectual property rights. It's horrifying, but it's but what they're doing is jumping on an equity bandwagon, which is very popular in Hollywood. And a lot of this vaccine IP discussion has now been reshaped as vaccine equity, which most people think vaccine equity. They think we want to get as many shots and as many arms and make sure that no one's left behind. But this is different. This is as Noah has said punish the people who who took the risk and developed the vaccine in order that other people can get it when in fact other people are already on path to get it uh, without that stripping of if this administration process. doesn't turn equity into a four letter word i don't know what will <laughs> it seems there's nothing that's that has been done in the name of equity that isn't utterly detestable as a as a matter of policy well, you know, uh, we could ask uh, Joe Biden these questions, but uh, uh, his uh, press secretary, Jen Psaki, admitted yesterday that she actually tells him not to answer any questions, which is interesting, by the way, because um, does does he work for Jen Psaki or does Jen Psaki work for him? Uh, he can answer questions any any time he wants to. Maybe he doesn't want to answer questions because he's afraid of what he'll say when he answers them, but I, I, I think we find ourselves in an interesting uh, situation in which a, a guy um, who appears to be largely a kind of empty suit, uh, generally speaking, an, an empty suit will lead a kind of empty, empty suit administration. That's sort of what we kind of expected, not that he would be an empty suit sitting at the wheel of a of a car driving recklessly a hundred miles an hour without any brakes, uh, uh, down, you know, down a, a crowded highway. Um, and, uh, that's one of the reasons the question is wh- where are the political instincts here? And it's not just his, by the way. And this is where the Republican party's behavior in the last like four or five years helps give suggest something about what the democratic party is going through, which is, you know, these guys have got to run for office again in 2022. They own all this. And unless the news is all good, 
you know, the natural dynamic of midterm elections means they're going to get their hats handed to them unless unless there is some kind of triumph here. So we now have an interference with job creation. We have uh, we have uh, uh, a kind of war with uh, American intellectual property just at a time when we're supposed to be like leaning hard into China on its theft of intellectual property. And we have, um, I don't know, continued weird messaging about the pandemic. And yeah, it could all clear up next September. So none of this will really matter. But does it feel like it does it feel like they're going to be riding a wave of optimism and happy? They don't even know how to stimulate one. They don't know how to celebrate anything, and they don't know how to talk up this well, country. This is well. I have a good example. This is a really important point because if you look at how they're trying to market the infrastructure spending bill, they're having a really hard time finding the optimistic message. Basically, they're going around saying everything's broken. We have to spend all this money to fix it, and that is heard by a lot of people in the public, like we're all broken and we've just spent a year, you know, getting through this pandemic to hear more bad news and then more potentially higher tax threats in the future for people, despite their, you know, vague reassurances that it won't happen. I don't think that's necessarily a positive message either. Recovery and spending for COVID relief immediately was popular with people. The polls say this is popular with people, but their messaging has been more negative than positive from what I've seen when they've been out on the road promoting this. Of course. The economy is broken. It requires an unprecedented redistribution of wealth. The pandemic's never going to be over. The country is riven by structural racism. All this is the stuff that the activists love. And it's a, we've been saying this, this is a big opportunity for Republicans to have strike an, um, a, an unabashedly optimistic tone about the future of this country. But they can't really do it either. I mean, the institutional Republican Party tries. The Tim Scotts of the world try and do a very good job of it. But what the base wants to hear is revenge. Right. But it's not just that. I I, I didn't really finish my point before, which is that the Republican Party uh, with news about with a with a with, you know, enormous economic growth and this and that and the other thing. Right. Going very strong economic growth in 2018. What did Trump do for two months? He talked about the caravans. He talked about the car. They're coming to kill everybody. What kind of message was that? What he wanted was to say, stay the course. Like we're, the, what we're doing here is going well. Things are good. We haven't had internet. We haven't had any international crises since I became president. And economic growth is strong and job growth is strong and unemployment is, you know, descending to, you know, levels that it hasn't been in 50 years. He said it, but that wasn't where the heat was and it's not where the interest of the party was. And similarly, Joe Biden could be saying, they're saying, you know what? We got 5% economic growth. Take off those masks. Let's all go have fun. Let's let's live up. Let's make this the Roaring Twenties. Let's have a great time. This country deserves a holiday after the horrors of the last year. But they don't want it either because they are addicted to their own version of catastrophism. Climate change, destroying the country, inequality, destroying social the social compact. Every... Every message about, and of course, structural racism and, you know, and, and, and the 1619 project and all of that. What not, neither of these parties thinks well of this country. Now the Republican Party is acting, you know, we have the, we have the person who is probably going to be head of the House conference walking around going on Steve Bannon's podcast saying the election was stolen and that she supports this deranged count in Maricopa County where people are looking for shards of bamboo in ballots to prove 
that they were shipped from Asia because somebody came up with this theory on 4chan on the in the QAnon or 8chan or 16chan or whatever the hell it is in the QAnon message boards. And this is the third ranking, it's going to be the third ranking person in the Republican Party structure on Capitol Hill. Nobody has anything good to say about this country. It's horrifying. Well, nobody in elite political leadership or mainstream institutions has anything good, but I still believe this might make me sound Pollyannish, but I think most Americans still love their country and still want to see it succeed and still want equal opportunity for everyone. I mean, I think that's actually the majority. There's just, there's been such a capture on both sides of the political aisle of this negative messaging and such a total capture of our educational and, you know, uh, media institutions that are relentlessly pushing only one message that where, where are people going to tell those stories? Where are they going to hear those stories? Right. And of course the media have absolutely no incentive. Both, both, both partisan media have no, no incentive, right? Cause the, the, the democratic aligned media wants to talk about the things it wants to talk about now, which is largely structural racism. And by the way, they're not, they're not relenting though. I thought they would on the border crisis being a problem of family separation rather than of the overwhelming of the American immigration system. And uh, so that's them. And then, of course, the conservative press are, you know, the anti-structural racism stuff, like they're destroying our schools and the election was stolen. And although they they won't say the election was stolen anymore because they might get sued by Dominion, uh, you know, voting system. So they, 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 I don't know what they say. Uh, but so it goes now to like Facebook is being mean to Trump or whatever, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I think the, the, on both sides, this, it comes from the same core ultimately, which is, um, the appeal of victimhood now is just so great. Um, and this is a deep cultural malady. Um, we used to look down on victimhood, um, rightly as something that was an obstacle in your path, uh, a victim, a victimhood mentality. And now the idea on both sides is that if you, if you can blame the country, you see, then you are not at fault for whatever, whatever problems you face. Um, this goes for, uh, people on the left who are facing all sorts of racism and classism, and it goes for people on the right who the media and the establishment is opposed. If we can all be victims, we we are blameless. Um, and this is a deep, deep cultural malady. Well, it's a pathway to power. We can't blame them for following incentive structures. The most powerful political message in this country right now is your circumstances are not your own. Some nefarious person is responsible for it. Some uh, ill-defined institution has done this to you and we're going to get them. And in an environment marked by inflation in which your money doesn't really this doesn't really have the same wealth or the purchasing power that it did yesterday uh, that has real weird psychological effects on people and a conspiratorial mindset that every po- powerful politician is catering to right now will only make that paranoia conspiratorial mindset worse and i fear for the the consequences to the to the American Civic Compact in that environment. By the way, right, this but- is this is why uh, um, inflation this time around is going to be much scarier than than it was in the seventies because because of where the culture is at. 
Well, and and that the cultural institutions that might, as John was saying earlier in the 70s, kind of mock it or or kind of tackle it, not head on, but in a way that was understandable and and, and basically acknowledged it. We're going to have the opposite here. We're going to have a pretense. We're going to have even more luxurious reality, Kardashian type TV that is going to attempt to distract you from what you're living day by day. That could be. Although, you know, um, remember that... um the story of uh, of the the growth of peak tv and the great tv of the 90s and 2000s um as uh, as a, a very good book called difficult men ma- made this point is that a lot of it is, was was actually a presage of trump if people had understood it correctly that it was about the woes concerns and life alterations in the lives of middle-aged white men all across the country, from Tony Soprano to um, the the guy in uh, Breaking Bad to uh, pretty much every show that you could name was about a morally questionable white guy in his forties who, from whom the country had gotten away, and and the and the desperate, increasingly desperate measures that he might take to keep his, you know, to 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 make it and do what was necessary for his family and his people, uh, despite his own weaknesses. Um, similarly, I don't know that 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 is a very resonant thing, and you can make all the. By the way, you can make all the, um, uh, you know, sort of like. Uh, minority-driven programs that you want, right? You can do all that. They can have the same message. Like, you know, you could have a you have a black family sitcom and the family has to go to the supermarket. I mean, it's not as though you then have, you know, it's like they're a black family, but then, you know, they they live in Malibu. Like, uh, that's also part and parcel of what what might happen culturally. And in the seventies, by the way, remember we were losing. I mean, seventies was a very bad time. Like, I, let's just make this clear: we had eleven hundred cases of domestic terrorism in nineteen seventy one. We had we had we had post offices blowing up and houses blowing up and kidnappings and people being shot on the streets of San Francisco. And we had we were losing a war. We lost a war. We had the images of the helicopters pulling off the roof in Saigon at the end of April of 1975. We had uh, we had testing rates in the in the in the U.S. Armed Forces of people using illegal drugs that had reached 40 percent uh, in drug testing in like 1979. We had we had a possible nuclear accident. We had a we had a chemical. We had Love Island. We had a chemical spill. We had all kinds of absolutely horrific horrendous things going on as well as a kind of economic uh collapse and we're not there yet um most of what happened to us and caused us this terrible economic dislocation was external to us right it was it was a it was a contagion uh that 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 pulled this off and it's one of the reasons that we're snapping back so fast because in fact there was nothing structurally off about what was going on in the US economy but we're now introducing it. And part of what I mean when I say we are, there is something sick here is that American know-how and ingenuity used to be something that Americans like, it was like a, it was like our calling card. It was something that everybody could claim. You know, Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic. The Wright brothers created the plane. We had the tallest buildings in the world. We, you know, we, we were can do and, you know, we, we built up a, a military in 12 months 
1942 when we we you know we took we got a man to the moon we built the interstate highway system all of that that's all american know-how and ingenuity and all this and we have an incredible example of it right now in the development of these vaccines and who is saying that is the president of the united states getting up and saying something magic marvelous and mysterious because america is so great did trump say it does biden say it what the hell is going on? It's a gimme. But they can't say it because they are committed in different ways to a message about American decline that they seem to want because they think they can leverage it for more power. And with that incredibly cheerful message, the crushing morosity of the end of this week has hit us. Crushing Morosity t-shirts available and sweatshirts available for you at merch.commentarymagazine.com. Wear them, enjoy them. And for A. Christina Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.